0: a terrible subject to have to speak on, but somebody has to do it, so I guess I'll be the one at this point. And in that sermon, to give a brief review, some of you have not even received the tape from that as yet, some of you are new on and did not hear it, so I'll give a little review of where I was, uh, and that is that the word higher means sacred, and archy is from archangel, meaning division or rank of angels. Put them together, and you have a sacred rank or hierarchy of angels. So God began hierarchy, and then we went through to show that God set up hierarchy in Eden through Adam to his wife Eve, and it was direct government, directly by God to man. Uh, The hierarchy of angels did not work perfectly, as we know one-third rebelled, and Adam and Eve failed completely as both rebelled. So even with absolute, perfect government from the top, uh, there was failure. Then we went through and showed that many different kinds of government have been used in Israel and in the world through the periods of the kings, the judges, uh, Moses. Uh, Even Babylon's hierarchy was given to Babylon by God as we see in Daniel four through five. And he said in verse seventeen, to the intent that all might come to believe in God and that he rules and gives power to whom he will. And then Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel forty or verse four or chapter four, verse thirty through thirty two, began to take credit for the government himself, and God immediately took it away from him. So well, some have postulated and have condemned all forms of hierarchy, saying that it was a Babylonian form of government. But we saw in that sermon that it came from God, and that God even gave it to Babylon, who of course misused it. There is always room for misuse and abuse in government, as you will see in any period of government you want to examine from the time God had problems with the angels down until today. We even saw in the New Testament that the master-slave relationships are hierarchical. And Paul did not even try to do away with masters and slaves in the New Testament church. Instead, he regulated how masters would treat their slaves and how the slaves would treat their masters. He could have said, this is not a government of God, forget it, throw it away, release all your slaves... But he didn't do that, did he? It's kind of interesting. But that is probably a form of government that we as humans might detest above all other forms of government. And yet Paul used that as an example to teach by showing that we are doulos, or slaves of Jesus Christ, bond slaves of Christ. So the relationships are not just father, son, children, but he uses the analogies of slaves and masters to show... How God's government can work, if it is done properly. The world tomorrow, we saw, is set up with hierarchy. The Father, the Son, and through the line of Israel, David is the king, the twelve apostles ruling under him, over the twelve tribes, so it's very clear there's hierarchy there. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he says. So if that is the form of government he has chosen in the past, it is the form of government he desires today, and it is the form of government he will have in the future. When all the scriptures on this are considered, I think it's unarguable. Then I showed, and I may have had a little disagreement when I first said this, that we love hierarchy. We do, every one of us. As long as we're in charge. And I use the example of the little kid who wants a cookie, and if he doesn't get his cookie, he throws himself on the floor, beats the floor, screams at the top of his lungs, until somebody puts him in charge and gives him a cookie. Because that's tantamount to what they're doing, is putting the kid in charge by giving in to his tantrum. Then the kid's happy. He's in charge. He's number one in the hierarchy. So the beef we have, generally, is we are not getting listened to enough, we feel, or we are not the ones allowed to make the decisions. And this rubs us the wrong way. Very simple analogy, but it gets the point across. How many times have you gone to a track meet or, let's say, a basketball tournament, and at the end of the tournament, the team that came in very last holds up all ten fingers and says, We're number ten! I've never seen it. Always you see them, they'll go off the field raising one finger in the air. We're number one, or I'm number one. That's what we like to be. And we came to the conclusion that no government can work if the rulers and those being ruled have wrong attitudes. No form of government will work. And secondarily, That almost any government, including slavery, can work if everyone has the right attitude. I'm not saying that that's what we ought to suddenly go back to, is total slavery, where the ministry gets himself a long black whip and uh, decides that he will be the master. That isn't the way to do it, even if you were, as Paul said. But any government under or below the Father and the Son so far hasn't worked. At least not perfectly. Why have organization? Is it for self-perpetuation or to create jobs? Is it to create a situation so that some people get to have power? And that everybody wants that power? Or are there deeper more important reasons than that. It's not like the bureaucracies of man where they do live to create jobs for themselves and create more rules to justify why they have a job or what their job is. What about Acts 8 and Simon Magus? He wanted God's Holy Spirit. He had been baptized by the deacons, but they did not have the authority to lay hands on him and give the Holy Spirit the germination of God's Spirit that they might begin a spiritual life. He had to wait until the ministry came along in the form of Peter, I think it was in James, primarily Peter. And Peter discerned an attitude in Simon Magus that the deacons had missed. And he said, no, I won't lay hands on you for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Now, was there some organization? Was there some decision-making there by Peter? You bet there was. There was authority to say, no, you are not repentant. You are not converted. And this just destroyed Simon Magus' whole idea about the church. He decided that he would find a spirit of power somewhere and turn to Satan who has power. And he was willing to give it without the laying on of hands. So he simply changed governments. Peter was not going to lay hands on it. How will we receive God's spirit if we're not baptized and someone is not authorized to lay hands on it? How do we get anointed when we're sick? Because God tells us how to do it. There are very important reasons to have a ministry around. We simply cannot do some of these things of ourselves. Now, let's pose a question. We have many different church organizations today across, out of the, some people don't like the term greater church of God, Uh, I'll say whole church of God or there has to be some way to express all these people who are in different organizations so I simply call it greater church of god doesn't mean necessarily one's greater than the other in that sense but I mean the whole what if all these organizations decided that some people are right who say there should be no hierarchy whatsoever and disbanded just disappeared said we we no longer function you're on your own, just you and Christ, as some wish it were. What would happen? Anarchy is a word that an, the prefix, is back or against, and government, uh, or the archy part is of angels. So it's against hierarchy. That's what anarchy means. No government. Let's go back to Isaiah 3 and see if we can find the church here. I want to begin in verse 1 to pick up the context. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, does take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread, and the whole stay of water. So this puts this chapter right now, because I think we've all pretty well recognized by now there is a famine of the word in the land So, he introduces chapter 3 by saying, during this famine, these are the conditions which will be extant. And he talks about how the different rulers are going to be taken down. Verse 4, and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. So, let's apply this spiritually. Uh, Spiritual princes, spiritual babes will be the ones that rule over And the people shall be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. Now, do we find that going on in the church today? People are arguing and bickering back and forth doctrinally and uh, functionally and governmentally and in almost any way you want to name, there are problems in the church today. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient and the base against the honorable. So those who are spiritual babes, are going to cry out and say, I want to rule. That's the cookie analogy all over again. It's right here in the Bible. When a man shall take hold of his brother, of the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, be you our ruler, and let this ruin be under your hand. It's getting to the place no one wants to be a minister anymore. No one wants to rule because the church keeps falling apart and who wants to preside over that? I'm so thankful I'm not at the top of this hierarchy in the church of the great God. I'm sure glad John Reitenbaugh is here. He gets to have more weight than I do. Now, we're not talking physically here. We're talking about the weight of governing. The weight of the buck stops here. It's easy for Richard and I here to sort of pass it to John. Well, you need to talk to John about that, see. I'm really thankful he's here. Don't you dare go away. (laughs) He's still willing, in spite of what's going on, to say, okay, I'll let this ruin be under my hand. (laughs) But that's getting rarer. It's getting rarer. And that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer, or as my... Uh, margin says a binder up one who tries to fix things nobody you know, the church is so scattered so dissolved so at war within itself that very few are even willing to take uh, take on the task of trying to bind it back together it's a hopeless chore at this point I've had people even recently ask me well why don't we just unite with these other groups good idea How? How? We've talked to some of them. We disagree on too many things. We can't walk together at this point. It's impossible. Until things change. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen. I think that's pretty clearly talking about the church today. Because their tongue and their doings against the Lord. Read James 3 about no man can control the tongue, and some of the greatest damage we do to each other is with our tongues, not ruling our tongues. To provoke the eyes of His glory, the show of their countenance does witness against them. You can see their attitudes right on their faces in many cases. They declare their sin as Sodom and hide it not. Now let's go down to verse 12. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, they which lead thee, that is, the women and children, cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. There are those who would have us have a democracy now in God's church, and particularly this one. It's, there's been a movement lately. Even giving the women and children a vote in everything we do. Now, think about that. A cross-section of any congregation of the church of God anywhere is going to have a majority of women and children simply because there are more mothers and kids than there are fathers so who rules if you have a democracy within the church, the women and children they have more votes right here in Isaiah 3 won't work, God says it will cause you to err and it will destroy the way of your paths now, let's go on down. Verse 25. Well, verse 24. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell there shall be stink. And what does God do when He smells stink? He turns His head. He told ancient Israel to bury their dung. Because when He walked through the camp He didn't want to smell it or step in it. But He says we in the church today have come to the point that there's stink. And instead of a girdle or rent and instead of well-set hair, baldness and instead of, uh, well, that, that's enough of that, burning instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and you're mighty in the war. The men cannot stand up anymore. They're spiritually dying. And he says the women and children will be taking over. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. So God says it's all going to fall apart, that the church is going to be desolate and sit upon the ground. Again, Matthew 24, 2, not one stone left upon another. And he says here in verses 2 and 3 of this very chapter that God is taking away the mighty man and the, the judge, the prophet, the prudent, the ancient, the captain of 50, the honorable man, and so on. So he's breaking it down. And that no man wants to rule anymore. The women and children basically will take over and total desolation occurs. And we're almost there. Now, it's interesting, once that happens, it begins to turn around. And how does it get back in order? Read chapter 4. And in that day shall seven women take hold of one man. This other deal did not work, so they're going to go back to the man and take hold. And they're going to say, we will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel and let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. That indicates unity begins to occur again once they get the government thing straightened out. And that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So it's talking about a remnant that escapes this horrible splintering and scattering that is occurring. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, that is, those who are still true Christians, haven't been slaughtered spiritually by famine, pestilence, disease, and so on, and he that remains in Jerusalem, or the true church, the real body of Christ, shall be called holy, even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem. So some are going to re- come through this thing spiritually still alive. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. We're going through judgment and burning right now. And God is going to purge and make clean. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall be a defense." And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. So I think he's telling us right there that he will take those who survive and who are willing to accept God's government in their lives, that is, government by God, and we'll discuss that a little bit later and what that what I mean by that. Those are the ones who are going to be accounted worthy to escape and go and have a covert and a Protection by Jesus Christ in a place of refuge. There they will be united. There they will agree. And there God will prepare his bride. Finish preparing his bride. I have been criticized once in a while in times past for focusing on the place of safety. No, I don't. It's just one of the steps toward entering the kingdom of God as a bride of Christ. And I think it's laid out pretty clearly here. Now, until this happens, be aware that even a moderator represents a form of hierarchy. Somebody has to decide where we're going to meet to take a vote. Somebody has to decide what we're going to vote on. There's a certain amount of control wielded even there. What about a family? There there have been times in my family, years past when... Uh, before all the kids left the nest anyway, maybe we'd be driving home from church after two Sabbaths and two sermons, and I was tired, so I'd say, where shall we eat tonight? I don't care. I don't know. Wherever you say. Well, how about we go here? Oh, no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and maybe you won't even eat, because nobody can say, "Oh, well, I don't care. Eh, the matter to me. Somebody finally says, well, I think we ought to go here, or the driver of the car has to pull in somewhere. Something has to happen here. A decision has to be made. And in absolute democracy, you might all go hungry. What casts your vote anyway? Is it your brain or your glands? Do we think things through, or do we... Vote emotionally. We can have problems with this voting thing. See, there has to be some organization to accomplish any goal, whether it be stopping for dinner or whatever it is that we want to do. You have to have some organization to accomplish it. Now, let's go to the lowest level of the hierarchy. And what will we find there? We will find you and me. Because this is an individual matter, as we shall see. Some people say, I'm just one-on-one with Jesus Christ. I don't need any shepherd but Christ. That's all I need. I mean, we hear this kind of statement. Is that true? And to what degree is it true? Is it only partially true? What if we made an organizational chart of God's government? Now, I, I don't have this passed out to all of you, and obviously I can't on the phone, and I can't even hold it up where you can see it. But uh, let's place a box at the top, and write God the Father in there. And then a little line down as they do in organizational charts in another box and put Jesus Christ. I think we all agree so far. No problem whatsoever. Now let's draw another line, maybe a longer one down, and let's put a big box, and let's put the church in there. Everybody that's in the church, because the church is the body of Christ, every member. Let's put everyone in that that box. And now we have a direct line from us up to Jesus Christ, up to the Father. Beautiful, huh? We all have direct access. This is the first time, that is beginning in Acts 2, that mankind has had absolute access to the Holy of Holies, to the Father. And 99.9 point something, people have never had that access. But we are among the privileged few who do. You have to worship in doctrine and in truth. Or spirit and in truth. Attitude and doctrine. And those who do not have the right attitude and who do not have the correct doctrine cannot worship the Father. They worship they know not what. I don't care how many people say Sunday keepers can be in the kingdom. They're wrong. You can only worship in spirit and in truth. So we have this privileged access to immediately, at any time, not just once a year, but any time, brethren, to go directly to the Father through Jesus Christ. Through Him, the veil of the temple was rent in twain and gave us this. Now, we've got this niggling problem here with the church. Where does the church fit in this? Can we draw another little box on that long line down to the people and put the church between the membership and God, I'm not speaking of the organization of the church, I mean the the leadership, the hierarchy, if you please. Can we put that box in there? Anybody say yes? I don't think so. I do not believe that the church government, any man, can come between you and direct access to the Father. There is no way John Reitenbaugh or Rod Meredith or Herbert Armstrong, if he was alive, can come between you and God. You have access, whether you're in a submarine, an airplane, in Africa, in Asia, here in the United States, Victoria, Canada, you can get access to God instantly from anywhere you are. That is, if your sins haven't cut you off so that He won't hear you. And the church cannot come between that. If the church gives you a hassle, you can sort of do an end around, can't you, and go directly to God about it. Where does that leave the church? How can we express this? I think on a chart, about the only way I can come up with to do it, is not to bisect that line between the member and Jesus Christ and God, but to draw another line down from the box with Christ and put the church in that box, and then tie that down to every member, every minister. Because the church, or the mother, even though in a way she is in line above the children in a family, yet the mother cannot keep the child from accessing the father, can she? Don't you dare talk to your dad. No, it doesn't work that way in a family. Now, when, when dad's gone to work, maybe mom has to deal with the kids. But still, those kids have access to their dad at any time. At least they did in my family. They could run to me. Mom gave them a hard time. Now, it was my responsibility, though, <laughs> to make sure that they didn't play mom against dad or dad against mom. Because kids will do that. But you can't keep them away. So let's separate it and put put the mother kind of over a little bit to the side and yet make a direct line through that box back to Christ and the Father. Because what is the mother's job? We'll see that here in just a minute. First of all, Galatians 4.26, Jerusalem is the mother of us all. That is, the church, the organization is the mother of us all. Though we're all part of the, the mother in one sense and an analogy, uh, there is an organization as well, and those who have been given certain gifts in that organization do have responsibilities. So they, in one sense, represent the mother as a whole, or represent the church as a mother. So God says that the mother, the church, has been sit, sit, been set here to represent the whole body, to God. So you can go directly to God or you can reach God through the mother, just as a child can reach the father through the mother. A child can appeal to his mom who can then go to the father. And sometimes when you are in trouble, you will go to a minister and you will ask him to pray or appeal to God in your behalf. At the same time, you're appealing to God directly. So combined... With the child and the mother together, maybe God will hear more than he would if it was just you down here. Or maybe the mother will say, well, if you want access to your dad, maybe you better change this. He told you to mow the lawn, you didn't do it. So you see, the mom is there to help that child keep his relationship with the father correct. She's there to give advice, to help, to strengthen. Let's go to Proverbs 31 real quickly. We're here in the neighborhood. Proverbs 31. Verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? A church. Well, it's hard these days, isn't it? If you do, her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. His family will be well taken care of. That's part of her responsibility. Take care of the family. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. What did Paul tell the ministry? Not to work out of constraint or for a paycheck, but to work willingly. She's like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She works at providing food for the children and for the husband, for, the, for, for everyone in the family. She rises also while it is yet night and gives meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She isn't lazy. She's right on the ball doing her job. God gives her quite a bit of latitude. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard so she can establish congregations. She has certain responsibility and authority here. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle goes not out by night. She stays up late The ministry needs to stay up late, studying, diligently preparing to be sure, Or, well, maybe stay up late, get up early. It talks about both here. To be sure, good food is provided. She lays her hand to the spindle and her hands hold the distaff. She stretches out her hand to the poor. There's your third tithe program. Without some kind of organization, how is this done? Yes, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household when tough weather comes. Uh, Rough water is there. She's not afraid because she's taken care of things. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple, so she provides good clothing, righteous teaching for her children. Her husband is known in the gates and when he sits among the elders of the land. So when people look at us as a mother, as a church, all of us together in the ministry, they should say, wow, what a God to have such a woman. How much do we reflect that? Good question for us. She makes fine linen and sells it, delivers girdles to the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. So God says the church that rules well will have strength and will be given honor. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Well, there, you get away from abuse, don't you? There are good mothers and there are bad mothers. And we've seen it in our lives. Remember the block you grew up on? Some mothers were fine mothers and took good care of the kids, and that's where everybody wanted to come, was down to Jones's house. And other mothers weren't so hot. Maybe they were off drinking or something else, and their kids were running around like waifs with the dirty clothes and nothing to eat and snotty noses. So you've seen both. And you may have survived one of the bad ones. I don't know. Or maybe a bad father. So, our perception of father and mother is colored to some degree by our own lives. But we need to understand that a proper mother, a proper church organization and government is going to rule with wisdom and the law of kindness in her tongue. Gentle. Isn't that the way Paul told the ministry to react to people? To be helpers of their joy, to be an encouragement, a strengthening not an overlord. And he said that several times. So yes, there have been abuses, but that does not do away with, nor dissolve, what God wants to do. That is just an abusive mother. And we have to get away from that. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but you excel them all. Favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, But a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So we're not here to look pretty. We're not here to increase in size necessarily. We're here to be the best mother of whatever God children God blesses us with that we can possibly be, whether it be few or whether it be many. And if we do this, maybe God will give us more. He opened wombs at times, didn't He? Or He closed wombs at times. It's up to him. But a lot of it has to do with what kind of mother we are. And I'm including all of us here, as you shall soon see. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Doesn't God judge us to some degree by our works? By faith we show our, uh, by our works we show our faith. So the mother is very important. Now, can a family without a mother, just the father and the kids, Survive and will, can the kids grow up? Can happen. But just try it. It's hard to do. Man has to go out and work. There's no one to take care of the kids. Somebody else takes care of them. They don't get properly disciplined. They don't get properly loved. And the family is to one degree or another dysfunctional. Now you may can hop into the kingdom on one leg without a mother, but you'll be hopping all the way and it'll be much, much harder. We've got two legs that we drew here in this organizational chart. One is the direct line to the father, and the other is through the mother. It kind of has a bend in the leg there, uh, but it goes there as well. Can a mother raise children by herself? In some respects, that might even be harder. Without an authority figure there, without a breadwinner there, she has an extreme difficult time, and some of you have experienced that. It's not easy to be a one-parent family. It just makes the whole process harder. So do we begin to see that we need a father and a mother? Now what is the, what part does the ministry play? Let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I know it's back here. And I want to begin on about uh, verse first. 11, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. This is what he gave, uh, in that sense, the ministry or the, the authority of the mother to the ministry for these purposes. It's a gift of God, as he says in some places. And the ministry is given gifts, as we see in First Corinthians twelve, gifts of God to do a job, just like a mother is given gifts of the father to do a job. He provides her money, he provides her a home, he provides her garden space, he provides her all the things she needs to be a proper mother. And God is given of the gifts to the ministry, just as representing the mother, the church, to do those things. That we and here's here's the purpose part of the purpose that we henceforth verse 14 be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. So the ministry is here to keep the doctrine straight. It's a very important function. Did the early New Testament church have the right doctrine through James, Peter, John, Paul and the others? You bet they did. Got it directly from Christ so they could trust that whatever James, Peter, John, and Paul taught was going to be correct. That is, once they got circumcision straightened out among themselves. There were a few glitches. It wasn't perfect. But you could rest assured that they would have the right doctrine. And when anyone brought a different doctrine or a different wind of doctrine, you could reject it. But people didn't tend to. So Paul had to preach, and John had to preach. Get away from that. Stay with the things once delivered. And I think God allowed Peter and Paul to think Christ was coming back for a very important reason. I mean that he was coming back right away. And that is so they would write the Bible in the present tense because it is primarily now for us at the end time. And therefore, those things that Peter and Paul and John said apply right now. Present tense. And we have exactly the same problem going on where people are departing from that body of belief that we all understood in worldwide years and years ago. Now, I ask you, did Herbert Armstrong receive true doctrine, correct doctrine from God through the Bible? He had to have. Otherwise, this is not the church. Otherwise, we might as well fold it up and go home, brethren. Because when God raised up an end-time work, And these truths were given to Him and we proved them ourselves in our own Bibles as did the Bereans. We accepted them and God built a church using them. (coughs) And what has drawn it apart? What has scattered it? Wild ideas about calendars. Wild ideas about when you keep Pentecost or 15th Passover. All kinds of winds of doctrine going about. This church cannot, I mean the greater church, cannot be unified until we all get back to the doctrines God gave Herbert W. Armstrong. That doesn't mean we can't learn small nuances and new angles and and flesh it out some, but those basic doctrines are inviolable. God was quite capable of giving us the truth, and we refer to it as the truth. And yet we start departing from the truth. But the ministry was here. Paul said that we not be tossed about by these things. Now, let's understand that the ministers are sheep also. And no minister is any better than any other sheep. And I mean that. We are no better than another sheep. God has given certain people gifts, and he gives different gifts to different people, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, for the purposes we read there in Ephesians 4, and which are also mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 12, to keep the body together. Now, what happens when you despise a gift of God? Go back and read the story of Esau, if you wonder. When you despise something God has given, what happens? You think about it in your own life. Let's say you have somebody that you love more than any other human on earth. And you think about it over a period of time. And you think of the perfect gift for that person who has nearly everything. And maybe you save your money over a period of months to give them something special. And you unwrap it and you see this real funny look go through their eyes. And they don't like it. And you know they don't like it. It just crushes you. And it breeds a certain frustration and maybe even resentment toward that individual if they didn't like what you brought them. Do you think God does not get frustrated and upset with us when we despise what He has given us? (laughs) Even the ministry? I laugh when I say that because many do not look upon the ministry as a gift anymore. And they certainly... Look it in the mouth. If it's a gift horse, or if it's a gift whatever they're trying to figure out. Gift ass, maybe. You see? But we're human, too. Uh, Give us room to be human, but we have been given certain gifts of God. Some more, some less. Different gifts. And this mother-child thing does not go all the way through necessarily. Let's see in First Timothy, 5, 1 Timothy 5, that the application can change because we also are brothers and sisters together. See, the analogies don't go all the way through. Uh, they go a certain amount, and another analogy applies that we might understand what God is doing. So he tells the ministry, "Rebuke not an elder or an older man, but entreat him as a father. So a young man, you can get all over his case once in a while. But an older man, uh, treat with respect the hoary head, as Proverbs says. And the younger men as brothers. You know, you you can get on to them a little more, perhaps. The elder women as mothers. Treat them with honor and respect as mothers. The younger as sisters with all purity. Be careful how you approach them. Honor widows that are widows indeed. So there are different relationships here in the family that... uh, that ebb and flow depending on who you're talking to. But he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14 not to neglect the gift that is in him. But God had put a gift in Timothy, and he was to be careful to use that gift to the benefit of God's people. Talks about smiting your fellow servants, saying, Oh, it's not time, and begins to get frustrated. And what do you do when you get frustrated? Well, kids beat on each other. That's what we find happening in God's church today. We start picking at, gossiping about each other and our mother. Why isn't the father doing anything? We might say, He isn't hearing our prayers, He isn't hearing our cries. Yet Matthew 25:37 through 46 says that we will be judged on how we treat each other. Are we passing Christianity 101 here? How are our marks? We need to think about that. Because God says he'll judge you and me based on how we treat each other. Now that's scary, isn't it? If you stop to think about it. It's not just you and me, Lord, is it? Can't be. He says, I'll judge you on how you treat each other. So if you think you can run off somewhere and do this by yourself, just you and me, Lord, you've got another thing coming. Because if you deny your brothers, helping them, encouraging them, strengthening them, meeting with them, fellowshipping together, God says you're leaving him out of the picture. That's another scary thought. Proverbs 15 verse 20, I won't turn and read it, says that a fool despises his mother in so many words. Or paraphrased at least pretty close to that. A fool despises his mother. So be real careful. Isn't it nice that we have a chance to choose our mother? Lots of mothers out there right now. Church organizations. We need to inspect the doctrine, inspect how kind and gentle they might be, how loving, How authoritarian? Do they maintain the correct doctrine? We need to inspect those. Choose a mother and stick with her. Not dishonor her. Not go away from her. The father is always the most important in the family. Can't get away from that. Don't want to get away from that. But the mother comes second. We always please God ahead of man Yet sometimes mercy, rather than sacrifice, does please God, because he prefers it. But always be sure you please God first, your mother second, but don't despise your mother. And that's what we tend to do, is disrespect the mother first. We see that in the human realm, day in and day out. We've already talked about it some. Now, we all want unity, but we're not willing to do that which produces unity. That is our problem. Philippians 2.3 says to esteem others better than ourselves, to put down our pride. So humility is the first key to unity. Doesn't Christ say the first shall be last and the last shall be first? Do we always have to be number one? Is it my idea, my family, my house, my wealth, my health, my honor, my integrity, my doctrinal approach? Does it always have to be my? I'm number one. See, that's it comes back to the same problem. We have these hungers, John Reed was talking about in the sermonette from Anaheim that we heard over the telephone today. We have these hungers to be right. But I'll tell you, the wine of new doctrine is a heady drink indeed. It intoxicates, and eventually it creates a hangover. So, because you have some new doctrine... Be real careful, brethren. Just be careful. I don't say don't study the Bible. Don't come up with new concepts, new ideas, new angles, because every time we open the Bible, it's a living book, and we should be learning. But it had better fit the skeleton. It had better fit the framework of true doctrine that we learned years ago. If it doesn't fit somewhere on that, then it needs to be discarded. And even though you may be so excited about it, you can just hardly stand it, be real careful but you don't esteem your new doctrine better than that which God gave Herbert Armstrong. I'm not saying that we can't, even from the bottom, learn new things. I think I've been as close to the bottom of the barrel as anybody has ever been. And yet when I open the Bible, it's new to me. Maybe it's just because I'm like a goose. I wake up in a new world every morning. I don't remember what I read. In fact, I'll I'll read the Bible sometimes and I think, boy, I never saw that before. Then I'll look over the margin. I wrote it 25 years ago. We are to be learning and we are to be studying. But just be careful that what you think you learned fits with those things that we know are right and have been tested and so on before. See, the ministry can't come between you and God. It just can't. Who? Who? gets between you and God. You do. I do. I get between me and God. My sins cut me off. It isn't the ministry that's the problem, in that sense. It isn't the church organization. It's me. That's why this thing comes down to self-government. I think it was Elroy Fair, at least this is where I heard the quote from. So we get, need to get to know the God we don't know rather than the one we do know. Think about that one. Which God do you know? The one you see in the mirror every morning. You think you're right about this, that, and the other thing. That's the God you know, the idolatry. And we have to open the Bible and get to know the God we don't know and put aside our ideas, our thoughts, our pride, And humbly yield to one another. Esteem others better than ourselves. That is a tough call. It's so easy to say they're wrong and I'm right. You don't think you're wrong, do you? If you did, you'd think something different. But you think you're right. And I think I'm right. It's automatic. But we need to truly consider what someone else has to say. So the first key to unity is humility, esteeming others' opinions, ideas, thoughts better than our own. That doesn't mean we accept that which is wrong and contrary to the Bible, but I mean we need to be willing to yield and give and serve and listen to one another. And the second key that is going to be absolutely necessary is to return to the faith once delivered not be run about by every wind of doctrine. It's so easy to happen. We can't be unified. We can't walk together unless we agree. What about the group that we know of that all decided they'd keep the feast on their own? And then they got together and they couldn't agree on when it ought to start. So they started the feast three different times, I think it was. There's democracy for you. There's getting away from that which unified us under Mr. Armstrong. You see, we have to go back to those things if we're ever to get together. Proverbs 5, 15 to 20 talks about it. Not embracing a strange woman. The wife of our youth, it says, is the one we should pay attention to. That's the woman that God raised up. Those were the truths. And the further you get from that, the more in trouble you will be. So self-government is the key. What does God tell us? For the ministry to bring every one of your thoughts into captivity? No, that's an abuse. If the ministry tries to tell you every little thing to do and how to live your life, it says bring your own thoughts into captivity. See, no government can work if the lowest common denominator, all those subject to that government, don't control themselves. Isn't it happening in our so-called wonderful democracy that started out with bells and Whistles and cracked liberty bells. We thought, ah, democracy will solve all the problems. But what do we find? We find those in leadership, even though there are checks and balances in this so-called democracy, actually, republic. Yet we find graft and corruption among those who are supposedly the leaders, and the checks and balances don't always work. And they say, you go over there and you steal from them. Well, I go over here and steal from them, and we'll never get together and tell the story. I mean, these things go on in the cloakrooms in Washington all the time unless somebody feels that they're not number one, and then they'll turn in the guy that is number one. So the fight goes on. And what is happening to our society, because we don't any longer govern ourselves in traffic. There are articles out right now about the aggressive driver. We're getting more and more selfish. You get out of my way. There's only so much room on this free win. I want it all. We don't govern ourselves, and therefore our society is falling apart. And the same thing is true of the church. Any government, as I said before, will not work unless everyone in it is self-governing from the top to the bottom. And therefore, the church is supervised self-government. Just like in the family, the father goes to work and leaves the kids to govern themselves. They're supposed to have the right attitudes. They're not supposed to kill each other. They're not supposed to turn on the fire hydrant. They're not supposed to burn the house down. They're supposed to govern themselves but they are supervised by the mother. And if the mother is the right kind of mother, she will do it kindly and gently and firmly. We have a problem, though, and it's in this little Snoopy cartoon. Linus is sitting here with his thumb in his mouth and his banky around his shoulder, hugging it up. And Lucy's sitting beside him. And he says, Why are you so always so anxious to criticize me? And she said... I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. And he says, What about your own faults? And she says, I have a knack for overlooking them. Pretty much it, isn't it? What does he tell us in Philippians eight? Philippians 4, verse 8. We are to walk as Christ walked, 1 John 2 6. We are to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. We are to self-govern. We are to make sure we are doing what's right. I'm standing here talking instead of finding Philippians, but I know it's right back here. Uh, Chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, are real, that is, reality, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, does that mean that you cannot recognize an error when you see one, or a false doctrine when you see one? No. Did Paul ignore the problem in 1 Corinthians 5 when he saw it? No, he addressed it and he said, you put that man out of there because of that sin. So he recognized the sin. He made a judgment on the sin. But he did not emphasize nor dwell on that sin. He took care of the problem and got his mind back on whatever he could find that was pure and just and holy and good and right. So we're not to blind our eyes to problems necessarily, but God says, make your emphasis Make your thought pattern on any virtue. I mean, it's easy, isn't it, to be like Lucy and say, I can see your problems, that's no no difficulty. But maybe that person is mostly converted and just has a problem or two. God is telling us through Paul here to emphasize what is good about that person. Don't emphasize that which is wrong. Because if you want to emphasize the wrong, first thing you know, (coughs) everything that person does will be wrong. It's just a thing that happens. Emphasize the negative, and pretty soon everything's negative. Emphasize the positive, and pretty soon maybe you can dwell, deal with and dwell with and handle the negative. It's a matter of direction in which you cause your thinking to take. Your thinking will naturally, as a man influenced by Satan and your human nature, go downhill. Toward the negative. It's just automatic. It's just like falling off a log. But you have to force it to think on the good part. Especially when somebody's doing something that's wrong right in front of you. so easy to put them down and throw them away because of that particular problem you think you see at that time. Maybe you do see it. Maybe it's not just think you see. Now let's go back to Proverbs 16 for a moment. And I just want to hit a few verses here. They're all close together. And they show us something. Proverbs 16. And let's pick it up in uh, verse 28. A froward, a presumptuous man, sows strife, and a whisperer separates chief friends. That thing's happening in the church of God today. Well, what's the solution to that? Self-governing of the tongue. Go back and read James 3. We have to learn to control our tongues. Church can't control your tongue. God won't control your tongue. Satan will try to influence your tongue. You have to make a decision to control your tongue. I have to do the same with mine. I can't say collectively here. Now, the Scripture says we ought to all control our tongues. It's so easy for you to get off the hook. and say well that means everybody but did you hear See, it's so easy to excuse ourselves because we have the straight dope on so and so maybe you do maybe you don't chapter verse 32 he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city maybe a great warrior could take a city But God says, if you rule your own spirit, you're far greater than that person who could kill people and take over a city. That is the hardest thing you've been given to do, is to rule your attitude, rule your spirit, rule your mind, rule your consciousness, so that every thought comes into the captivity of Christ, so that the very mind of Christ be in us. That is a tall order. But that's what self-government is all about. Chapter 17, verse 5. Whoso mocks the poor reproaches his maker. And he that is glad at calamity shall not be unpunished. Sometimes we feel better about ourselves if we can put somebody else down and laugh at their calamity, laugh at their sin, laugh at their ineptitude. But God says, control that attitude. Don't laugh at the calamity of someone else. The Bible's full of instruction like this. He he puts it down as our individual responsibility. He that covers a transgression, verse 9, seeks love, but he that repeats a matter separates very friends. How healthy is our grapevine in the church of the great God? Maybe I shouldn't even ask that. How long does it take for an evil report or a foul deed or a sin or a misstatement to get through the church? Hopefully, that's, uh, that artery is getting clogged. <laughs> It's a good place for clogged artery is in the grapevine of the wagging tongue of the church. You and I are the only ones that can heal that. You and I are the only ones that can slow it down and stop it. And it calls for strong self-government. Now, I could stand here and I could scream until I was livid in the face and order and shout for you to quit this gossip. And I, as a representative of the church, could do absolutely nothing about it unless you chose to listen to me. So I won't yell at you; wouldn't do any good. It's up to you. See, self-government. Seventeen, verse fourteen. The beginning of strife is when, when one lets out water. So easy, so natural. So urgent at times to start strife. Comes easy. But only we can control when and where we go to the bathroom on each other. Let's go down to verse 22. A merry heart does like good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. So if we can be upbeat, if we can be cheerful, if we can be loving, if we can be kind, as Paul said in Philippians 4, 8. See, we're governing our spirit. We're governing and controlling our attitudes. I saw a sweatshirt the other day that said, I have an attitude and I know how to use it. (laughs) Some of these things are pretty piquant. What kind of attitude you got? A good one, you know how to use that. I don't think that was the implication, but you can take it that way. No, you can't take it that way. You have to make it that way. We have to control our emotions. Otherwise, no government can work. Ministers have to control theirs. The people have to control theirs. Please be merciful on me when I have trouble controlling mine, and I shall try to be merciful on you when you have trouble controlling yours. And maybe together we can help each other, strengthen each other, lead each other, sharpen each other as iron, and prepare ourselves for the kingdom of God. Because the mother is not perfect. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. I better wind this up pretty quickly here now. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, for love shall cover the multitude of sins. Now, there's a scripture that's probably dear to to the hearts of all of us. We love to have our sins covered. And if we love our brother as ourselves, we will love to have his sins covered. So, you'll see us make mistakes, brethren. You'll see John make a mistake every 10, 20 years. And you'll see me make a mistake every time you follow me around. But have mercy on us. Have compassion on us. Didn't Elijah and Paul suffer from like passions as everybody else? Sure they did. They had to fight to control themselves just like everyone else. And so do all of us. But if the family is not going to be dysfunctional, we have to learn to give, get along with each other. I want to go quickly to Colossians here, because this, this, this is really a good one. Colossians 3. And verse eleven, Colossians three eleven. Paul is talking here about having the right attitude. In verse ten, put on the new man, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Now these people, Greek and Jew, hated one another; wouldn't even speak to one another. And here they were sitting in a congregation loathing each other from childhood. I mean, they're not like us who sort of out of all parts of society came together and here we are. No, they hated one another from birth. They were taught that. And what kind of a personal, individual responsibility did Paul lay on them? Understanding that background. "...put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you." That was a big order for those people. And yet, Paul and God expected them to live up to it, because they now were no longer Greek nor Jew, They were all the elect of God, just as you and I are. And he lays it on us to love each other and not allow ourselves to despise and hate and think negative about one another, which is so natural and so easy. If for them, for us, that means all race feelings need to go away too, because that's what he told them. It goes down that deep. 1 John 3, 16-18 Love not in word, but in deed and in truth. Then the government will work. Then the hierarchy will work. Let's understand that we have a direct line to the Holy of Holies and to God Himself in heaven. What an incredible thing that is. Out of all the people, the billions on this earth, just a few thousand have a direct line to God. Let us, and we have a mother, who has been given to us to love, to feed, to clothe, and tend us. And I remind you of Proverbs 19:26. Let us not waste our father or chase away our mother. Use both opportunities to help you govern yourself, that you may be a son in which your father and your mother can be well pleased. And if I might sum this up, if it's possible to put it in one sentence, it would be this. A spiritual baby, that is a baby that is in the womb, already engendered, already conceived, preparing to be a king into the kingdom of God. A spiritual baby is a work of the father through the mother, but even the child is known by his works, whether they be evil or good. It ties in with John's sermon here about salvation being the work of the father. But the mother has her part to play. And without the mother, the father would have difficulty conceiving the child. And that child has serious responsibilities to both the father and the mother, whether he be good or evil. That's where works do come into it. He has individual responsibility. And if we do that, then we are self-governing and hierarchy can and will work. God will allow us to be born into his kingdom if we govern ourselves properly. Otherwise, we'll be a miscarriage. We won't be born. But he's put us here to live. He's given us life already in the womb of the mother. And if we will be fed and nurtured and clothed and taken care of properly and respect and honor our father and our mother, we will be born into the kingdom of God.